Neither the king nor any of his servants have heard all these words. Nevertheless, Almason and Deliah and Gemariah had made intercession to the king that he would not burn the roll, that he would not hear them. But the king commanded Jeramiel the son of Amalek, and Sariah the son of Azrael, and Shelemiah the son of Abiel to take Baruch the scribe and Jeremiah the prophet, but the Lord hid them. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after that the king had burned the roll and the words which Pharaoh had uh, wrote at the mouth of Jeremiah, saying, Take thee again another roll and write in it all the former words that were in the first roll which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, had burned. And thou shalt say to Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Thus saith the Lord, thou hast burned this roll, saying, Why hast thou written therein? saying, The king of Babylon shall certainly come and destroy this land. It shall cause the cease from them man and beast. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, He shall have none to sit upon the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out in the days of the heat and in the night of the cross. And I will punish him and his seed and his servants for their iniquity. And I will bring upon them and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and upon the men of Judah all the evil that I have pronounced against them, but they hearken not. Then took Jeremiah another roll, and gave it to Pharaoh the scribe, the son of Zariah, who wrote therein from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the book which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And there were added besides unto them many like words. And next, Chapter 38, verses 14, following. In the meantime, between these chapters, all those things prophesied concerning Jehoiakim came to pass. Ophianus, the next king, saw disaster. They saw Nebuchadnezzar take Jerusalem and take some of the people into captivity, but then Zedekiah, on the throne as king, who was the last king of Judea. And tell him that he was not anxious to destroy the nation, but they could stay there and pay a nominal sum of tribute to him, have their independence, if they would stay out his battle with Egypt. He did not want a country, however small, with a strong fortress in the mountains, to be a problem to his supply line in his struggle with Egypt. He wanted their neutrality. But again, they had delusions of grandeur and decided they could make themselves great and powerful by playing ball with Egypt although Egypt had an unbroken record of violating every treaty that she had made with Judea. Meanwhile, Jeremiah had been put into a dungeon in the reign of Zedekiah. These were the last days of Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 14, chapter 38. Then Zedekiah the king sent and took Jeremiah the prophet unto him into the third entry 
that is in the house of the Lord. And the king said unto Jeremiah, I will ask thee a thing, hide nothing from thee. Then Jeremiah said unto Zedekiah, If I declare it unto thee, wilt thou not surely put me to death? And if I give thee counsel, wilt thou not hearken unto me? So Zedekiah the king swore secretly unto Jeremiah, saying, As the Lord liveth with me, thus this soul I will not put thee to death. Neither will I give thee into the hand of these men that seek thy life. Now, briefly, you see the picture. Here is the man in the dungeon, Jeremiah. And the king is sending for him to know what's going to happen. He is admitting that Jeremiah has been accurate at every point. So there is this secret interview which he says no one else must know about. Then said Jeremiah unto Zedekiah, Thus saith the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, If thou wilt assuredly go forth unto the king of Babylon's princes, then thy soul shall live, and the city shall not be burned with fire. And thou shalt live in thine house. But if thou wilt not go forth for the king of Babylon's princes, then shall the city be given into the hand of the Chaldeans. They shall burn it with fire, and thou shalt not escape out of their hand. Zedekiah the king said unto Jeremiah, I am afraid of the Jews that are fallen into the Chaldeans lest they deliver me into their hand, and they mock me. But Jeremiah said, They shall not deliver thee. Obey, I beseech thee, the voice of the Lord, which I speak unto thee. So it shall be well with thee, and thy soul shall live. If thou refuse to go forth, this is the burden that the Lord hath chosen. Behold, all the women that are left in the king of Judah's house shall be brought forth king of Babylon's princes. For those women shall say, Thy friends have set thee on and have prevailed against thee. Thy feet are sunk in the mire, they are turned away back. So they shall bring out all thy wives and thy children to the Chaldeans, and thou shalt not escape out of their hand, but shall be taken by the hand of the king of Babylon. And thou, thou shalt cause this city to be burned. Now Zedekiah, notice, has not disagreed with this. He knows that the city is going to fall, that Jeremiah is right, that if he is not killed, he will be blinded and taken a prisoner, that his women folk will be tossed around to the others and they will turn on him with contempt because they know what's ahead. Sons will probably be all of that killed or else castrated, made eunuchs. Then said Zedekiah unto Jeremiah, Let no man know of these words that thou shalt not die. But if the princes hear that I have talked with thee, they come unto thee and say unto thee, Declare unto us now what thou hast said unto the king, Hide it not from us. We will not put thee to death. Also, what the king said unto thee. Then thou shalt say unto them, I presented my supplication before the king, that he would not cause me to return to Jonathan's house to die there. Then came all the princes unto Jeremiah and asked him, and he told them according to all the king's words 
the king had commanded. So they left off speaking with him, for the matter was now proceed. So Jeremiah abode in the court of the prison until the day that Jerusalem was taken, and he was there when Jerusalem was taken. 1921, just a couple of years or so after World War I ended. A very interesting book was published in England and then in America within a matter of months. The title was Black of Fashion. It was an anonymous book. It was very obviously written by a man in high places in the British government, a man who knew everybody of any significance in England and Scotland and really in every country of any consequence. The book is a very revealing one, a very interesting one to this day. This anonymous author and his preface to Americans said, I quote, with you, as with us, the fashion of the daily life is set by those who have sacrificed to a false science. He's talking about Darwin and evolution. Almost without thought, the one great secret of joy, namely faith, and a creative purpose, unquote. And he said, now men's lives are governed by the lack of any physical thought, by their belief in evolution. And he went on to say, and I quote, the mob believes in Darwinian evolution, believes that the universe is an accident, life is an accident, and beauty is an accident. It has made up its mind on hearsay and incorporated into its moods without realization of the logical consequences, a theory of existence which is as false as it is destructive. This mob composed of all classes carries the destiny of the human race. Unquote. So he said, we are going to see in the years ahead the outworking of this false faith which if it is not supplanted will destroy the world. Then he went on to speak about the faith of modern man. That it was a return to the faith of antiquity. And he said of pagan antiquity, and I quote, philosophy sought to elevate the moral character by improving the intellect. Christianity reversed the order, unquote. Very clearly, this is a most discerning comment. It must be recognized very plainly that pagan thought had an implicit dualism. It did believe that the body was a tainted thing, but the mind was not. Man's reason, man's intellect was clear, impartial, objective, thoughtless, 
able to stand apart from everything and judge everything impartially and clearly. As a result, we people got nothing of their philosophers like Socrates being all degenerate and yet pontificating on virtue, honesty, truth, justice, and so on. For them, the rejection, the salvation of the world must be by the application of man's intellect or reason to man's problem. Pagan philosophy held that man's decisions are governed by his reason, so that the appeal to reason was the decisive fact in any situation simply make the facts plain, and you will then change men. To enlighten man's reason was to solve his problems. In the book of Jeremiah, we have a telling illustration of the contrary which we were just read. Jehoiakim and his princes knew that all reason was behind Jeremiah's statements as well as the revealed word of God. They knew that they had no chance against Nebuchadnezzar. They knew that Egypt had never kept a treaty when it involved any sacrifice on their part. They made treaties with one idea that the other person was to keep it to their advantage and they were never under any obligation to keep it if it was to their disadvantage. Reason governed man. Jehoiakim and his rulers, his princes, would have known that Jeremiah was right. Is their answer a logical one? Did they say for such and such reasons it is impossible for your conclusion to be true and the rational, the logical conclusion of an intelligent man is precisely what you're doing? No. On the contrary, they sought for Jeremiah to execute him. They seized that part of his book which he was writing, which is our Book of the prophet Jeremiah seized it, had it read, and expressed their contempt by deliberately, as it was being read, the king splitting each page of the scroll, drawing it in the fire. There were only three men of all the nobility, the cabinet, the associates of the king who had beforehand protested and none this time. Zedekiah, the last king, knew all these things. He never disputed a single thing that Jeremiah told him. And yet he went straight without any variation in full knowledge 
still logical decision, and to his ruin, to the destruction of his kingdom and his capital. Were these men logical? Was their decision governed by reason? On the contrary, we must say that man's reason is governed by his moral character. Men come to decisions in terms of what they are. Some years ago, a man told me of an experience that he felt was rather strange. He spent an evening with a friend, a very important man, telling him what the situation was in this country and what was happening, what was going on in Washington. Step by step, He demolished every argument that his friend offered. Step by step, he got him to admit that this fact, that that fact, what did it add up to concerning what this country was doing? But the course of things was with Washington. The kind of leadership, the kind of subversion that was going on. The evening ended with a friend admitting that his conclusions held Walter Washington. Did he change his friend? No. He never saw him again. The man's life and his thinking was governed by his moral character and he was not about to change. Logically, he had had to admit that the opposite position was true. Like Zedekiah, he wanted no part. But we must say still further that a man's moral character is the product of still something else. His religious faith. A man's mind is shaped by his moral character and his moral character by his faith. Now, that faith be false, there is a whole chain of deadly consequences. And of course, what we see all around us is the consequence of false faith, of humanism. Humanism undergirds every subversive, every liberal, too many conservatives. And as a result, they wind up with false conclusions. They are not governed by reason. For their reason is a reflection of their moral character, and their moral character is a reflection of their false faith. I was reading not too long ago, rereading, very interesting book, a classic, not read by anyone except Houston, who is a specialist in the field, which is the fact about 
certain classes. This is a classic of humanism. Written by Afra Ben. The title is Orunoko or the Royal Slave. Now the dates of Afra Ben were 1640 to 1689. Afra Ben had apparently been for a while in the Americas, in Suriname and elsewhere, in the Indies as well as America. We don't know much about her life. She called herself Mrs. Afrofan. We don't know what her maiden name was. We don't know whether she really had a husband. She was an agent, a spy for King Charles II, and every bit his equal in moral degeneracy. He was a very popular playwright in London. Her plays were always sensational because any play by Afropan could be depended on to be the dirtiest show in town. That was her appeal. But she was a true blue humanist. Now, this is what she wrote about the natives of Suriname and the West Indies. The Indians there. I quote, from these people represented to me an absolute idea of the first state of innocence before man knew how to sin. And it is most evident and plain that sinful nature is the most harmless, inoffensive, and virtuous mistress. It is she alone, if she were permitted, that better instructs the world than all the inventions of man. Religion by that he meant Christian, she meant Christianity, would here but destroy that tranquility they possess by ignorance. And laws would but teach them to know a sense of which now they have no notion. They have a native justice which knows no fraud, and they understand no vice or cunning, but when they are Christianity 
and a return to primitivism. They do not see salvation as the purgation of sin and guilt through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. Rid yourself of Christianity of a work ethic, in favor of paganism, in favor of a life beyond religion. This primitivism, the thinking that after Ben represented as a classical form, is basic to our modern world and its views of threats, politics, power, literature, religion, education, just about everything. The religious presupposition, therefore, must be proved. It is not enough to say that Adam's reason, his intellect, is governed by his moral character and his moral character by religious faith. That religious faith must be grounded on truth, on Jesus Christ. Westminster divines that truth is in order to goodness. That is, there could be no goodness, no good result, or there is no truth. Another very interesting example of that principle is Thursday, when Joe Richardson called me from Sacramento, and he said he just had a very interesting which would gratify them because you had reasoned in terms of Christian presuppositions and he had been right. He's on the law enforcement committee and he'd been talking on the telephone with Chief Davis of Los Angeles. He made a remark in passing about the terrible decline everywhere in the world in law enforcement. But said the report from Canada and agreed that their situation is well handled. And the religion said, that's not true. They cannot be. They are as bad as anywhere else. David said, well, how do you know that? Do you have another set of statistics? And Will said, no. But I do not believe that when people acquire a false faith, the area of genealogy, they're going to have good conclusions. And Davis said, well, that's not enough proof for me. Richardson called up some of the men in the offices in Canada, the capital, not the men in the public relations department or the men who issued the statistics, but the men who compiled they gave him a terrifying picture. And they were more than a little profane about these figures that have been issued. He added incidentally that the statistics are just as fraudulent in this country. He said in every state and nationally their doctor's statistics are routine. And he said last year at the 16 to 17,000 men in state prisons, almost a thousand escaped. There was so much hue and cry over that, and the state decided to do something.
This year will show a lower figure because we changed what can be classified as a CAP. If he is caught within three miles of the prison, he is not an SKP. And there are certain other qualifications whereby there will be a major drop in the number of SKPs. And this is the way there is a drop in the statistics to be recorded in every area of crime. Logical? No. Man is not a logical creature. Rational? No. Why have they got this? Whether in Canada or Europe or the United States, so that they're doing it all over the world. Because they begin with a false faith, and they have a false character, which leads them to work for false, dishonest conclusions. If truth does not undergird man's character and mind, then he is not only self-deceived, but is a sensitive noble profession for a mask for evil. The illusion of the humanist is that because they want a world of peace, prosperity, and justice, this makes them noble. All they have to do is to get up and spout that they are for everything that is good true and beautiful, but somehow that makes them good, true, and beautiful. I have at home a paperback book, which is a long speech by a famous European on June 1st, 1938, calling for world crusade against Hitler, and how he's going to usher in a great and a glorious new age of reason triumphant. And the conclusion of this speech, which was before some of the greatest political figures, literary figures, artists, wealthy and prominent people of France, the speaker who was vice president of the French Chamber of Deputies concluded by saying, ladies and gentlemen, I've just sketched before you the broad outline which all will be a worldwide reality. These profound transformations will be driven into fact. No, man will not be eternally opposed to himself. No, man will not be eternally forced to waste his energy in class struggles and war. No, man will not see poverty eternally rising out of abundance. No, man will not be eternally a wolf Whatever is said, whatever is done, nothing will halt the mark of history. Nothing will prevent, finally, the establishment of a society of harmony, of work and progress, a society form of plan. If we all desire it, and we all must desire it, the country of Descartes will remain of reason triumphant. The name of the speaker was Jacques Dubois, the top communist in France and a close associate of Stalin.
Now his conviction that he represented the truth was very intense. It was the logical conclusion of a false faith which produced a false character which led to false conclusions. And his hearers, having the same background, were ready to applaud him. This self-deception, this self-delusion is not limited to science. The past few days there was a very interesting column, Jim Bishop's column on Kennedy. He discussed John F. Kennedy as his friend, whom he knew well. And he admitted that much as he liked him, he could not think of him or any of the Kennedys as great as faithful. He said, and I quote, people who are not willing to help further the ambitions of the Kennedys for nothing were criminally motivated in their eyes, unquote. There was a tremendous self-righteousness and self-delusion there. Thus, he said, it is that the Kennedys were rather bewildering for him. And he concluded that John F. Kennedy, despite a greatness within him, all this spouting about peace and justice and so on, in spite of the fact that I admire him personally, I still think of him as more of a better politician than a lofty state. Very interesting statement coming from a friend. Now, John Dewey, of course, believed that intelligence was man's savior. And he very bluntly stated that he favored the method of changing the world through intelligent action as against the method of changing the self through religion. The reason, therefore, was man's hope for reconstruction. And against this, in history, Scripture and those who have stood in terms of Scripture, Augustine, Anselm, Calvin, have been the great opponents. Trust in the intellect, in reason, as man's savior means ultimately trust in some men who have superior intellects as saviors. The great socialist who preceded Marx and from whom Marx bowed very copiously without giving credit was San Simon. And San Simon was very, very blunt about things that since then they have crossed petals. San Simon said very plainly, and I quote, that only the small number of those who devote their lives to the investigation of social sciences will be able to analyze the dogma scientifically, unquote. And then he went on to say very plainly that the masses would have to accept what the social scientists said in the same way that they had been used to accepting the dogma of Christianity, of revelation. They did not have the mind to question the scientific elite. In other words, reason and the elite were to become a new revelation and a new thought as far as that. The 
is why they don't speak about Samson too much nowadays. He was more honest about taking these things than the modern socialists and social scientists are. Thus we may say very, very plainly in terms of qualification. But then as the Jehoiakims and the Zedekiahs of history will continue to act in terms not of their reasoning, but in terms of their moral character, which in turn is, is grounded on their qualifications. That man's savior is not his intellect. That man's only savior is the truth. Jesus Christ, who declared, I am the way, the truth, and the light. And when man's reason is not founded on that truth, it always adds up to a lie. When man's character is not founded on that truth, his reasoning will be false. When man's faith is not founded on that truth, his character and his reasoning will be You shall know the truth, the truth, and only the truth, Jesus Christ, shall make you free. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank thee that thou hast established us by thy grace and mercy on Jesus Christ, the truth. And we pray, our Father, as thou hast made us the truth, that we may bring all things into subjection and captivity to Jesus Christ, who is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. In his name we pray. Amen. We have time just for a couple of very quick questions. No, when men in the sciences arrive at a correct conclusion or develop something of note, it is not because of uh, anything but that they have operated on borrowed Dr. Van Til has done the great work here of showing how these men are really thieves. Thus, if in terms of their faith, the chance is ultimate, they went into the laboratory and work, they could come up with nothing. Because it would be impossible for them to come up with any valid conclusion. They had no reason for assuming any consistency in the world, any law order in the world, any structure so that they could come up with a valid conclusion. As a result, when they go into the laboratory, they assume that there is gravity, that there is order, that there is 
purpose or meaning in the universe. Otherwise, they couldn't operate. So they're dishonest. They're not working in terms of their presupposition. They are borrowing presuppositions from the God of Scripture while they're in the Bible book. And as long as they do, they can come up with something. But even then, they are limited. Now, a few years ago, some of us who were here heard Dr. Lambert speak in Buena Park. And Dr. Lambert has won over ten international prizes in genetics. He said the reason for it was very simple. He began with the presupposition of creationism. So he said, I immediately had ruled out a lot of dead ends that other geneticists spent years pursuing. I knew what was impossible and what was possible because there was a fundamental law order in the universe as a result of God's creation. You can have no science on the presupposition of atheism. So they are schizophrenic. They operate on false premises. Yes. All over the world now, there are doctors' statistics. They simply, for example, uh, now what used to be a misdemeanor is no longer dealt with. What used to be called a felony is treated as a misdemeanor, and so on. And this is the kind of thing that's leading to the announcement that supposedly the situation has improved. And of course, this business of escapees, that to me is so ludicrous, and yet, it's the kind of thing that's done every day. Yes. It is both. It is a religious concept. It is a philosophy. It is a scientific concept. It's a total concept. It applies in whatever field you're working. It's also a very important concept in the arts. Because if you begin from a position of creationism, you definitely are going to have a very different perspective than a man who believes there is no order, no meaning, no purpose in the universe. Modern art is precisely the conclusion of an evolutionary faith. It is anti-meaning, anti-purpose throughout. Our time is up now. Let's bow our heads now for the benediction. And now go in peace. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost bless you and keep you, guide and protect you this day and always.